Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. When she looked around the city of West Palm Beach, Kiran Bowman saw herself reflected in the people, but not the art, especially not the street art. Kiran was raised in Riviera Beach, a proudly black community north of West Palm. But so much of the murals and public art she saw go up in the last decade didn't reflect the city's black origins. She set out to change that. Kiran and several friends founded an art collective called Street Art Revolution. Their goal was to tap into the city's diversity and use it to create public art. One of her group's most significant works is a mural of black leaders. It ties images of names you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, to people who played an important role locally, like arts champion Augusta Savage, who was raised in West Palm and helped lead the Harlem Renaissance. Since then, Kiran's art collective has helped other artists find space to show their work. They have projects as far north as Atlanta. But it's their work here, at home in South Florida, that's making the biggest difference. She's with us today to talk about it. Okay. Welcome, Karan. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, we've seen, we talk about the mural scene and that so much of, you know, the work that you talked about here is, is creating that big visual public art. Mm-hmm. And West Palm Beach is kind of newish to that, right? Like in the last decade or so. Oh, yeah. You know, we're, well, let's put it this way. I guess we're about 20 years behind Miami, but we're catching up, you know. We've got a lot of cranes in the air and a lot of development going on in the downtown area of West Palm Beach. But uh, in terms of art, Mm -hmm. you're very much right. Um, We did not start, we had a um, percent for art added to the city's, um, um, added to the city's um, laws, mm-hmm. right, into their budget and mm-hmm. everything. And that has been a game changer. But um, a lot of the art, like you said, um, I saw a, um, there was a lack of diversity right. with the art and a lack of um, culturally relevant art, you know, because, um, you know, uh, how can I put it? There's a lot of public art created mm-hmm. that is meant for pigeons. You know, you don't want that. You know, you want art that has a connection and a power with people. And the problem is that uh, a lot of the art you, like for example, people have gone to the park and they've seen the bronze sculpture of somebody. And you have no clue who this person is. Who that somebody is, right. Right. And they don't put any marker on there explaining why did we give this person something so important, you know, as a place in our parks. Um, I remember um, there's a main street in West Palm called Okeechobee Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And for years, they had a sculpture of a gentleman there. And I had no clue why (laughs) they had given this man this prominent space. And it so happened that he was the person who helped launch some of the development of redevelopment of our downtown area. Um, For many years, our downtown, like many downtowns, had gone abandoned, had gone fallow um, for many years. A lot of empty lots, a lot of empty buildings. You got it. It was basically abandoned. It was like a ghost town. You know, I remember my father said he didn't want his car to stop down there because of the tumbleweed, you know, (laughs) because it was just known as, okay, you went to City Hall, you left quickly, that kind of thing. Well, Miami's downtown was like that for for many years when I was growing up here. mm -hmm. Like after 5 p.m., it just shut down and everybody went home. Exactly, yeah. and then yeah. dead on the weekend. On um, the weekend, yep. um, one of the um, one of our one of our main um, people who have hired us to do murals in the um, downtown area is called the Subculture Group. Um, he was uh, a restaurant right. tour who uh, basically bought property when people shouldn't have been buying property in the downtown West Palm Beach area. Was that, and, not, was that a Rodney Mayo? 
Yes, Rodney yes. Mayo. Yeah. Uh, so he has like the coffee shop. He's got Hullabaloo, the restaurant. He's got a little bar across the street. Mm-hmm. Respectable it, street, right? It's like a, a exactly. club kind of thing. He has um, Respectable has been in business for the last 30 years. It's got uh, a great name. It's got a great name. <laughs> um, he's had everyone from the hot, Red Hot Chili Peppers to Slick Rick play there. I mean, he's had a variety of people over the years who have become very famous, who have gone through that area um, and really stuff. Really kept mm. a lot of life in that in that section of West Palm. Um, I would say he was the person who basically kind of ignited mm-hmm. the, um, the redevelopment and the renaissance of West Palm Beach uh, Mayo um, because of the fact that he had the vision to put businesses where no one else would have thought of at the time. Um, he basically owns most of the block there. He also owns now his subculture group has expanded through other areas in Palm Beach County. And he also owns a... Um, restaurant or club over in um, Miami Beach so right. he's even got business down here as well but um, but a big part of that was having so he had these buildings with these big empty walls maybe exactly. next to an empty lot and like what could we possibly do here you hit it how about uh, some public art he was the person who basically you know he wanted public art but he also wanted public art that wasn't just just stick a, something up about my business he wanted right. public art that had something to do with the community I, w- I always think of this artist who, I mean, beautiful work, uh, uh, Tristan Eaton, who did this, I want to say it's like a five-story mm-hmm. um, projected mural on the side of the old Bell South building downtown. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this is an amazing piece of art, mm-hmm. but this guy's from like California or something. And I guess you must have had similar thoughts like that too, right? Oh, you're reading my mind. <laughs> <laughs> What happened with us was that a group of my friends, we were um, artists, we were doing exhibits together, we you know, we had worked a lot together. And then we kind of came to the point where we saw a lot of commissions going to people outside the community and stuff. And I said, well, we can do this stuff, and um, why not let us get together as a grouping and apply for things? And, to, um, and that gave us a power, you know, by working together and to um, accomplish the goal of getting um, art commissions. So like uh, pooling your resources, like, hey, if we put all put our strengths together, we can be the street art revolution, the name of your group. and it, Exactly. And bring that street art, right. And so basically that's one of the things that your that example you gave was excellent. Um, and we basically started doing work, like I said, that reflate, related to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the projects that we did that I found to be how can I say, probably one of the most difficult projects because we had a lot of red tape. Um, The um, public art um, coordinator uh, for the city uh, did not care for this idea. Um, Mm. She did not believe in putting art in, how can we say, ethnically diverse neighborhoods. Mm. (laughs) Let's put it that way. She made it very clear to me. I don't fund that. (laughs) Oh, wow. That must have been a real real kick to you guys. So what... How did you respond to that? Well, how do I respond? I came out fighting. I mean, I said I felt that every community is entitled to have art in their community. To me, art is not an elitist thing. I think the thing about street art is it is the most democratic form of art. It is available to everybody, and it gives people a voice. Um, what I wanted to do was um, you have Overtown, um, Overtown here in, um, in um, Miami. Right. In West Palm Beach, we have an area of the city known as the Northwest. And Mm. the Northwest is our traditional African-American segregated neighborhood. And um, for many... Segregated historically and kind of de facto, maybe still? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Due to economics, due to redlining, um, a lot of social problems. Um, It had uh, had a lot of problems, the area, and still does. 
but there but there has been changes and progress being made there um, what happened was we wanted to be a part of that change and when I went down there I said there's no art down here at all I said you know it would be a great idea maybe we expanded our reach instead of just doing downtown as a group maybe do one or two murals here in the northwest and the northwest is kind of in between Riviera Beach area where you grew up right, right and West Palm so it's right. like this and, and it's got context, right? It's got historical connection. Absolutely. Um, they had a lot. you got to remember, during segregation, the um, music scene was very segregated. And um, um, black performers could not perform in white venues. Um, so the area of the Northwest had numerous clubs on Rosemary. Um, many of them... Uh, many of the clubs, unfortunately, have been torn down during the 90s. But one club remained, which was the Sunset Lounge. And that one was a very, it was called the Cotton Club uh, Cotton Club of the South. I mean, it was so well known. And so many people from Duke Ellington, Ellis Fitzgerald, um, uh, Miles Davis, um, uh, Ray Charles, you name it, B.B. King. You name it, they played there. Um, so we wanted to connect the, um, the community's legacy with this art. So we decide to pick um, Louis Armstrong. Um, he played that played at the Sunset in the 40s, and so we wanted to connect that history. Um, and as for the public art director, well, basically I went to every commissioner. I went and lobbied and pushed for it, and they agreed. It was a great idea, and they supported it, and we were able to get the funding to do it. Well, you were tenacious. <laughs> you said this is going to happen. And it took over a year and a half for us to get it done to get the um you know finally get everything laid out to get um get the um red tape and that person out of the way right um when we did it the thing i remember going in i remember people kept on saying to me oh these people are not going to appreciate this these people are not going to understand this these people the very coded words right there oh yeah very yeah. coded mm -hmm. and stuff like this you people should not be doing art in this area as, okay, if, as if it, as if it takes a degree to look at a piece of art and be moved by it, right? Right. <laughs> uh, what happened was of any project we ever did, I've never seen a outpouring of just people being moved. People kept on stopping us. I mean, we were working on this thing, and people kept on stopping to tell me their feelings, their memories of the um, sunset. Um, people bringing their children. I've got to bring my grandson by because I want him to know about Louis Armstrong. You know, they it brought up conversations with um, family members, intergenerational conversations. We had these ladies who were across the street. They had a little apartment building, and this these ladies, which this woman would sit out on the um, terrace each day, and she was always talking on the phone. You know, and you know, she literally came up to us and basically said. I am so elated that you guys did this. The wall was such a, you know, a, you know, it was. Let's put it this way: this wall was busted biscuits. I mean, it was, it was tore up, tore up. <laughs> yeah, and she had to look at it every day. There right. were people who had to drive by and live with that every day. And you're right, and that's basically what she said to us. She said it made such a dramatic difference. They were so proud of the fact that we had put art on their walls. They were proud of the history we brought to it. it. The church next door said they were just overjoyed that we had done something. So all this um, negativity, all these prejudgments that people had uh, just, just were ridiculous. You know, it basically showed me too that sometimes, you know, I, I remember when I was going through the grief of it, you know, someone was saying, well, you, they're just not, you, this is all for nothing. This one artist told me because they're just not going to appreciate it. And of all the um, public art projects I ever did, 
I've never found people more moved by a piece and more grateful for a work of art in their community. I mean, um, we even got a, a, a shout out from one of the commissioners who was, um, um, he said, every day I pass it, I smile, you know. Um, so the power of art to change things, to bring a focus to a community and to look at themselves with different eyes, mm -hmm. to even look and connect to their history, you know, because if you don't know where you've been, how can you go forward? And I think the thing was, a lot of people were disillusioned. And that was something I kind of realized how proud they were of this, connecting their history of the sunset to the present. Our guest today is Karan Bowman. She's the founder and director uh, of curation at Street Art Revolution, a public art collective based in West Palm Beach. You're talking about this big success, you know, the, this big mural of uh, Louis Armstrong mm -hmm. uh, on the north, the northwest side of town. Yeah, on the northwest. And kind of uh, how it, it really tapped into the history of that place. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about your own history in this place. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're raised in Riviera Beach, but you have, you're of like Afro-Honduran descent, right? I, yeah, definitely so. <laughs> you have a strong connection there. Tell me about, about uh, like, how did your, how did your, your kin end up in, in Riviera Beach? Okay, um, my, my, both my parents come from Honduras, okay? And they come from um, an island off the coast of Honduras called Rotan. And on Rotan, it was once owned by the British, then owned by the Spanish. So they have kind of a mixed culture there, a little bit of what you would consider Bahamian, mm -hmm. Jamaican flavor to the culture, as well as Latin American. So it's the best of both worlds. <laughs> they got that Caribbean feel, yeah. So so they came to to Riviera Beach? When... Well, this is what happened. Um, my father, there's a port, Port of Palm Beach, and my father, mm -hmm. a lot of the um, young men from the island took freighter ships out. You know, they got on the boats, they went and basically worked on the freighter ships. Um, my father um, was going in and out of the Port of Palm Beach. And so my mother was in New York at the time, because at one point he was working out of New York. So she decided to, you know, to, you know, take the bus and come to come to West Palm Beach. But he hadn't arrived yet because he had been delayed. Um, and so she basically was there for about two months on her own. And she said it was really wonderful. Come to think of it, um, the Northwest kind of holds a special place in my heart because of that. She said when she got there, she met this um, cab driver. And she said, well, I need to rent a place, you know. You know, is there some place I can just rent temporarily? And he said, I'll take you to a place. And he said, and he took, him, took her to the Northwest. And she said the lady's name was Mame. She was originally from Louisiana. And she said she was like a second mother to her. She was just wonderful. It was a rooming house that they had in the Northwest. And she said the people were very friendly. At the time, you know, the community, it was in the um, late 70s when she arrived. And the community was um, still... Um, had not been touched by the drug epidemic that would follow in the 80s. You know, she said basically people kept their doors unlocked. She said, you know, I would never even thought of locking my door when I was in the rooming house. I remember she made that comment to me. She said it was very safe to walk around that neighborhood at that time and stuff. But the um, warmth of the people have remained because when we were there, we got to feel that warmth and that uh, that connection with them. I mean, uh, you, basically, it was it was interesting how protective people were of us. If someone passed, it was strange. They would come out and look. Are you girls all right? You know, or saying we're fine because um, uh, it, the core members of the group are two women and two men. Hmm. And that day, we were doing the background for Louis. And, of your, uh, your collective that painted that mural. There. Right, of that collective that was painting the mural. Uh, uh, my uh, the, the woman who was working with me that day is Dahlia Perryman. Um, she's a 
multi-talented artist and poet and stuff. You need to have her on the oh, show. Oh, well, that's it. Put her on the list. <laughs> but, um, she, but, um, but the warmth of the community. So that was one of my, you know, from childhood I heard about the Northwest and how warm the people were there. And, of course, you know, over the years we would go down there and pick up ribs and different things, you know, going through that community and stuff. So for you, in a way, it was really being able to give this gift to the, to this community that had received your mom really warmly. Yes. And your yes. family really warmly. Yeah. Because she said, you know, coming from Honduras, it was like she was like a fish out of water. You know, she had not, you know, been, you know, you know, been in the country that long. Um, and for her to meet friendly, warm people, you know, when you're, you know, new to a place, it's, you know, the thing that you need, you know. Did she speak much English or She spoke English. She spoke English. Mm-hmm. She spoke English um, and stuff. But, you know, like she said, there was no, um, you know, at that time in West Palm in particular, there was not a lot of Latin um no Latin people in general. Sure. I think they. Uh, my father said at the time when he came, it was very um, um, limited. He said that basically in the south end you had a few Cubans. Yeah. But he said it was very limited. He would meet in his case because he worked on the boats. He would get the guys from all the different Latin countries because they worked on the boats. Mm-hmm. You know, coming in and out of the port. But as for people living there permanently as residents, that was a different story. Because eventually he would leave the freighter ship and he was going. He took a job um, being a stevedore at the port so he had a permanent job there at the port and he was no longer going in and out uh, at, at a sea but my uncles on the other hand they stayed on the freighter ships and stuff and of course as a kid I was spoiled I mean in what er- way because because well, you have having the family or you well the kid? thing is you got to remember they had one I don't know what it was maybe it was a custom in Latin America but every time when these guys would come for Columbia, they would give me a half dollar piece. I just loved that as oh, a kid. Oh, yeah. Everybody <laughs> shows up with money and puts it in your palm. That's right. A, that's you know, good... <laughs> that, that was a good thing and stuff. But also my uncles were, I guess, they had, they liked art, I guess, would, would be would be the thing. I, they would not see themselves as collectors, but they would bring back, you know, I called them cookie jars, these wonderful carvings from Haiti. They were done in these um, vessels like this, and they would like a cookie jar that you would take your take the top off of. Um, magnificent wood carvings. They would bring stuff back from wherever they came, you know, from if they were in Guatemala, we would get stuff from there, you know, pottery, um, art pieces. And of course, as a kid, I just loved this. You know, I ate it up. You How know? beautiful that they that they brought art into your life in this way in very tangible ways. That right. I mean, it must have just helped really... It made art part of the fabric of your growing up, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, it did. Um, you know, my father, um, he um, had a great love for um, the, um, you know, uh, in Honduras, they have the ceremonial temples of Copan. And, of course, this is a Mayan city, you know, Mayan religious center it was, you know. Um, and it's um, it basically has beautiful carvings all over this uh, these structures, these ruins. And what has happened in Honduras is they had... Um, Honduras is known for its mahogany. And what they had was schools there in Honduras where the guys learned to carve these Mayan um, ruins, you know, the, um, you know, the glyphs mm-hmm. into the furniture and, um, and, you know, into dining room tables. You know, it, you know, it's touristy, but it was also wonderful as a kid when he brought back home these end tables with all these carvings of the Mayan heads. I mean, it made me fall in love as a kid with that um uh, with that um, that look, right? So that art starts to influence you, and and like, how did that? I see how art comes into your life. How did you begin to express art? You know, obviously, you get to this point where you are now, you know, an artist for your career. But how did you begin to express art? How did you find ways where you saw that it was uh, 
it, it was allowing you to, to, to say something about yourself and your background. Well, I always drew, and to some horror to my mother, because I also drew on the walls, like many little <laughs> kids. I mean, you know, I remember being handed, I never been handed the uh, Comet and the uh, the scrub brush to scrub it off the wall. Scrub that crayon. What were you painting? What, what were you drawing? Just pencil? Or? I was doing crayons. I was doing, I was drawing all over her walls. And of course, my, my sister. Uh, you were a muralist since you were a little kid? Yeah. You know, I never thought of it that way. I, I never thought of it that way. But, um. She, um, I never forget my poor sister got nailed. She said, you were watching her. You can also help her. <laughs> so, uh, aided and abetted. Aided and abetted. But as it went, as time went on, I began to do more drawing on my own and, you know, incorporate a lot of ethnic iconography into my work that was, you know, influenced by Caribbean culture as well as Central American, like I said, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas. It made me have a deep appreciation for that. You kept connected with your Caribbean culture, even though you were in a very, like, uh, traditionally uh, southern black area. You kept uh, American area. You were Yeah, it was American area, but keep in mind, Riviera Beach had a lot of Caribbean people. Because of the ports. Because of the ports, mm-hmm. and also their early history, because you got to remember, Riviera Beach was a... Um, I think it's maybe number one in the state still for um, marine industry. Mm. When I say that boating and mm-hmm. different things to do with that, um, Ripovich has a yacht um, 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 uh, yacht business there. Um, That's right, I remember. So they, they, were, they were fixing, I want to say, JFK's uh, boat at one point or something right. like that. One of his, and, mm-hmm. and, stuff, and, come, and so therefore, um, that culture there, like for instance, you have people who are mixed with Bahamian there. You know, like for instance, a dear friend of mine who um, recently passed, who was an artist, um, Demetrius McCray. The McCrays, um, uh, he was a. Um, they were part Bahamian. Okay, so you had a lot of people from over from the Caribbean islands who did settle in Riviera Beach. So there was a little bit of that flavor underneath there, underneath the Southern um, culture as well. So. And then, of course, I had relatives coming in and out, you know, like I said, because of the port, you know, my dad would have guests all the time from different countries. I mean, I don't think I think every pretty much nearly um, every Latin country, you know, came through there at one point saying hello. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a bit about how you begin to express your art. In other words, you know, you obviously have an interest in it as a kid. You have you're exposed to so many different cultures from where you are. When did you start to create art uh, like as a career and thinking about art as a career well I started exhibiting you know my sister Mm -hmm. encouraged me to exhibit and I got some opportunities and stuff like that I had a friend who was an artist and one of the first places I had exhibited was a show I won it was doing some um believe it or not it was fiber art at the time (laughs) um with Juno Beach they um it's further up the road from us and they had an art show at their city hall so I had entered that I had done um another place that was an exhibition um they had for local artists was um Palm Beach Gardens um they had a um area where they had um they had like a multi kind of thing where they had performance they had an art exhibit um and stuff and so I had done it was called Garden Arts and I had done a um show there I did my first one person show there and then I you know I basically got my teaching degree and started working as a teacher and for many years you know I did it on the side the exhibiting and producing art I still produced it teaching paid the bills but uh but, right teaching but paid the, the art, bills the art was uh secondary to it or parallel to it right parallel to it and then I ended up with a boss that literally I she called me into her office one day and she said to me Miss Bowman, why are you teaching spelling? 
I'm like, because they don't know how to spell. <laughs> no, you know, but basically. You're like an elementary school teacher? I was an elementary school teacher. And I specialized in um, ESC, and I had a lot of kids who were, um, came from bilingual homes. And basically how the Esau worked is the moment they could verbally learn English, they threw them out. Well, the problem is oh. there's more to English than just verbal. Right. Um, they need to write it. And so these kids had also, the they, they didn't want to keep them in Esau because they said they have a learning disability. Well, I said, well, they, they need Esau and me. But um, because of that, I was dealing with kids who, you know, they, they could maybe say the word cat, but they couldn't spell it in English. So, you know, so I was doing a lot of that. Then I had some kids who were, um, uh, would be on the spectrum of mentally retarded, you know, and stuff like that. Right, like they had they had different uh, developmental disabilities. Right, and right. And did you incorporate your art? Was that ever any part of your the teaching? Well, you I doing? did. Believe it or not, I had done a program with the school district, um, um, where you took art and you brought it into classrooms, and we basically helped the teachers develop a curriculum losing art to impart it to children, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was um, it was a really interesting time because I had done that on the side as well, and that's what got me into trying to um, get my full degree as a teacher, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. But after having this crazy boss, you know, I I was like, you know, my a godmother said, you know, she said, you know, your first love was art. Maybe you should go back to that versus dealing with all the politics of this crazy kind of people and stuff. So that's when I decided, you know what. You know, how can I say, you know, I just decided to just drop, drop, the, you know, trying to go after a job in the system, you know, and start working on art full time. And it, and it was, um, and doors started to open for me. Commissions started to come my way. Our guest today is Kiran Bowman. She's a multidisciplinary public artist, curator, and consultant from West Palm Beach. She's also the founder of the Street Art Revolution. It's a public art collective based in West Palm. Kiran, tell me, you obviously have so much, you had this art surrounding you in your life uh, to the point where people are telling you you should pursue this as a career. Mm -hmm. And you saw what you've done is so interesting in that you have really tapped into the local art that was, uh, and the local stories that were, Mm -hmm. uh, that had been obscured. Tell me about that, about how then you apply your art into this kind of storytelling locally, about history locally. Well, like I told you, I think public art must be culturally relevant. Mm. I think a museum sometimes missed the boat by having art in the museum that people can't identify with. Mm. You know, I think um, it may be good for their backers, but it's also bad in terms of being a public institution. You know, if people can't connect to the art, to me, it has no power. You know, Um, like I said, when you talk about street art, it has a power, you know, to convey messages. It's open to everyone. It is probably the most democratic form of art that you have. And I think um, public art should be that. It should have a power and a connection to people. And so a lot of the things that we took an interest in, um, some of it was local history. We did one, once again, one of the, when we had talked about Louis, we had um, wanted to do three murals. And because of the fact that we ended up with so much red tape at the time from this individual, um, this public art coordinator. Um, I, you know, I said to um, my friend Tony Hernandez. I said to him, I said, let's, you know, you know, you know, put this on the back burner, you know, and stuff, and we'll we'll see. Maybe we can do this some other time or in some other place. So and- you, you learned some things about that. One, that it was difficult to do if the right people in in in, uh, in government spaces weren't backing you, mm-hmm. but also that it could have great impact because you got such great response. 
mm-hmm. from people. So tell me about other moments in pub- that you created public art, whether it was murals or, mm-hmm. or what have you, that um, that you felt made an impact or made it had an effect locally well this was okay we there are two murals that we did mm-hmm. okay one mural that we did was called revolution of the groove and basically that was kind of an outcrop from louis because we could we never got to fulfill what we had wanted to do down there which was the three um, murals and we had done a um design of miles davis and um i said to um the um tony i said i said well you know why don't we take this? We had an opportunity with the subculture group. They had a wall in the main, one of the main areas of town across from the Maya Amphitheater on his club called Camelot. And we decided to um, do the design there. We presented the idea to him, and I told him what I want to focus on is two things. One, that the first line of the civil rights movement is our music in the African-American community. Mm. Um, you have to remember people from Bessie Smith talking about in the blues about African-American plight, you know, during segregation. Also, when you go further back, Negro spirituals that were basically messages for imparting information from um, how to run away, to escape to the north, as well as just telling their feelings. Um, the music was the first line of the revolution. So we picked artists when we brought this idea to them. We picked artists, one, that played at the Sunset Lounge, mm. who had history to the area, connection to the area, as well as music that moved people to do, you know, basically the idea of art changing hearts and minds. What's going on, Marvin Gaye, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, Aretha Franklin's Respect. James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud. My mother told me the story when that came to Honduras. She said she did not realize there were black people in the United States. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Because she said all the people who came to the island were white Americans. So she said she had never seen anyone black from the U.S. So that must have been a revelation to her, not just the music, but then actually arriving in the States in Riviera Beach that was predominantly black. Right. But when she heard the song, I'm black and I'm proud, she said, you know, it had a message that just didn't emulate with African Americans in the United States. It emulated with African people all over the all over the world. She felt it. And she felt it. They played it so much they killed the record. She said they basically <laughs> they, they played it to, you know, constantly. They were so elated with the sound that he had. Um and So you were like, This is definitely being this is definitely will definitely be reflected on this wall. Right. <laughs> then we did um, Nina Simone, and of course Nina Simone is famous for um, I'm not going to say it here, but she's famous for a song called Mississippi D. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, people can look it up. It was basically inspired by the death of Medgar Evers. Okay, he was assassinated in Mississippi. He was the head of one, the local NACP in that area, and of course he did a lot of things to try to move the um, civil rights movement through the state of Mississippi. And Mississippi had some of the worst racism, um, probably in the United States. Um, and so we put her also on the um, mural. So basically the mural reflected, we wanted one for people to connect with it culturally, with the music, as well as the local history behind it. Because like for instance, Miles Davis played there, several of the artists played there at the Sunset Lounge. So that was also important for um important thing that we wanted to connect local history to what was on the wall but the thing that moved me and the thing that Mm -hmm. I didn't realize when I started doing I thought of it as African-American music but I realized that was not the case I mean people came up to me 
of all ethnic backgrounds, elated with the music, telling me their story, telling me how they how these songs shaped their viewpoint of things and stuff. That the music basically, even though it was black music, it was American music. So that you were having a similar when you start painting this mural, then mm-hmm. of these of these uh, black artists, mm-hmm. you start having a similar response to when you painted the Louis Armstrong one in the Northwest. Exactly, people, people <laughs> in the community responding to it. Yes, responding to it, stopping, you know, uh, all sorts of people stopping. I remember there were a group of guys, and they were um, they were um, Hisp- Hispanic, and they would stop every day to see what we were doing on this mural, these Mexican guys. I mean, it was, it was amazing how people embraced it, and people wanted to take pictures in front of it, and how people wanted to talk to me about each one of the artists and what they meant to them. So, so you were you were you were still teaching. You were well, teaching st- some history. St- I get. I guess you're right. I guess I am still teaching. And of course, this mural. But one mural that we did that is we did was based on the civil rights movement, and that mural also um, uh, was controversial to some. Once again, controversial to some. Uh, I, and this is the one we talked to talked at the, uh, at the top that was uh, on Respectable Street. Right. 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 Tell me about that. Why was it controversial? Uh, you had to remember in the downtown, there had not been in the literal downtown any black imagery, really. Wow. Uh, that was one thing. Um, that's, and, that's kind of stunning, especially since, you know, West Palm Beach has all these these black roots. I mean, literally the whole city was founded as a place for black workers mm-hmm. that were working on Palm Beach Island. So much, so many parallels to Miami Beach and, and mm-hmm. Miami proper, too. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, Flagler brought in a lot of African-American workers. They did have some other people in there, um, other workers, but there was a large portion of African-Americans who were brought in from various parts of the South, as well as even the Caribbean came in to work on Flagler's Railroad, to work on the hotels and help develop Palm Beach. Um, the sticks. Yeah, but which, you got pushback when you when you wanted to create a when your collective wanted to create a mural of black leaders. Well, the good thing about this is the pushback. I think the you know it was controversial, but um, she had the person had no power because this was once again a private wall hmm. and stuff like that. But she did cause some stir afterwards. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> but we, but we, but the owner basically told her to go fly a kite. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it was controversial because of the fact that they had not had black imagery in the downtown for African Americans and people. Um, how was in, that? How was that criticism expressed to you? In other words, like we know what they mean, right? When 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 there's controversy, but how is it expressed to you? Oh, we don't allow pictures of people, or what was the well the, the objection, so to okay. speak? This okay now. Uh, keep in mind the the uh, person, this public art corner. She was the same one who had issue with Louis. Oh. Um, she basically came down there, told um, the Mr. Mayo, I, I I don't we don't like that. She didn't like it. She wanted it gone. We don't like it. That's, <laughs> that's basically what we she said. Like and she wanted to take it down. She said no one likes your mural and it needs to be taken down. And she was Oof. lobbying for that, but. Uh, Basically, the outpour from the community was so great. Now, this is the difference between community and a bureaucrat hmm. um, and the community one. Um, communi- I mean, we had people who were literally in tears overseeing that history presented right. and stuff. So that move, moved me in that sense that we were doing the right thing. And regardless of, you know, someone coming along and saying they didn't like it, you know, you know, I was going to continue on that track. It was a story that needed to be told. Um, and, and you'd plugged into something locally. Uh, you plugged into something 
that spoke to that community mm-hmm. obviously is that was the strong reaction that the positive strong positive I think reaction. it what it developed in the community was common ground mm. you know for the African American community they were seeing their history celebrated okay and an ability to talk about that history for the white community it gave them a, a a teachable moment, as mm-hmm. Mr. Obama would say, um, they got to learn about a history, and and you have to remember, we did. I did several talks in front of the mural, and I had a lot of people of various ethnic backgrounds come, other than African Americans, to this. So this was something celebrated by a variety of people. I remember uh, a news reporter; um, uh, they were for a real estate magazine, and she used the mural as an example that. West Palm Beach was no longer the dirty South, that they had diversity there and appreciation for diversity by using our mural as an example of social progress within the community. Hmm. So how did, how, did, how did you feel about that? I felt proud about that. Um, I felt proud that, one, we had taken an issue that we had hit, it, um, basically knocked it at the park in terms of the community, that they were proud to see it and that it, it basically um, built bridges you know, versus barriers. And I think that's far more important. Um, You know, we can focus, when we talk about the past and Mm -hmm. painful history, um, we need to focus on making the connection of bridging people together, you know, because barriers don't help, you know, walls don't help, you know. Unless they're to paint on. Unless they're to paint on and stuff. How did that open the door to other projects? Because now your, your collective is of several artists and you, as I understand, you guys had an art exhibit. You, you have a, you had a wall in Atlanta. You had something with uh, that Kendrick Kendrick Lamar commissioned in New York. Uh, okay, that's something I had done. Um, that was for um, Kendrick Lamar had a call out at the time to do um, album covers, and I was one. And he decided he didn't pick me for the album cover, but he decided when he um, he picked several artists that he liked who had done work, um, done, had done submissions, mm-hmm. and he gave us the opportunity to be shown in New York at an art exhibit profiling all the artists um, that he liked oh, that were wow. in there. So it was well, a really wonderful experience and stuff like that. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about some of the things that came from that, from really exposing your art in kind of, you know, in one mm-hmm. of the main art centers of the world. You know? Well, you know, it was positive. I think it also opened the door for me to do other things. Mm-hmm. I had a, um opportunity um, with, um, what's his name, um, I had an opportunity with um, Beck Spear. Mm, okay. And, um, got you we, some commercial projects out of that? I, I, I did yeah. something with them, and that led to um, Nick Knight. Um, uh, he gave me an opportunity. Um, he was doing a project with Daphne Guinness, and um, it was it was for one of these um, fancy department stores on the Trump Lyses in Paris. Okay. And he wanted art. Basically, they had, in this um, uh, French department store, they had huge... Huge um, TV monitors, I would call them TV monitors, screensavers, however you mm-hmm. want to describe mm-hmm. it. And they wanted to rotate art. And come to think of it, I did um, the Carolina. Um, you know, um, you know, if you're familiar with um, Mexican folklore of the beautiful, elegant dressed lady who's mm-hmm. a skull. You know, she's in the famous um, uh, painting um, Alameda Park with Diego Rivera, where she's dressed up, this um, skeleton woman dressed up in all these fancy clothes. Well, I did a version inspired by that. Um, um, I did a piece of work inspired by that, and that became one of the screensavers. <laughs> oh, so you're, 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 your world really opened up with things right, like that. Right, right. So and he, now you bring all that experience, and, mm-hmm. you're, and you're in West Palm, and you've had so much success. How does that, how do those doors locally open then? So you, you must have had, like, 
artists must have come out of the woodwork and said, we love what you're doing here, right? Well, yeah, we had a lot of artists. We have a um, group of artists onto the core members. We have four core members, and we have a group of artists that basically rotate in and out, you know, mm -hmm. and stuff. And we have been able to work with a variety of people. I mean, um, Luis Valley, uh, Nate D, um, he is, um, he's um, in the Broward, Miami area, so is Luis. Um, um, it's been a really wonderful experience. We've done a lot of, believe it or not, a lot of um, mural, uh, collective mural painting in um, Art of Palm Beach. We had um, done that for many years. Um, we did one, um, we did several. Um, one was um, Azuka Negra, which was um, based on the fact that you had a lot of Afro, one of the things that shocked me was that people would come up to me and say, there are no black people in Latin America. People would say this to you. Yes, they would say this to me. I remember my sister had one of the craziest incidents she had told me about a teacher who told her, she said, she told her, they, they asked her she where her family was from, and she told them the country, and she said, no, 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 you're from Haiti. Oh, okay, no. it's like no one in our family speaks Creole, even though we have Haitian friends. <laughs> we know one speaks Creole and stuff, and have great wow. appreciation for Haitian culture, but we're not Haitian. Um, so that made me think about the fact that people had this perceived notion that Latin America was one particular group when that's not the case. You have a whole diverse populations in Latin America, everything from, from Jewish to Chinese in some, you know, areas. I mean, you've got a whole bunch of different groups that have ran through there. Sounds but, like an inspiration for another mural. Yeah, there, you're right. right? <laughs> the uniqueness, the melting pot in Latin America. But I wanted to um, basically draw attention to the fact that Afro African culture was sprinkled throughout the um, Latin diaspora like sugar mm. and basically added a flavor to each one of these cultures from Mexico to um, to Colombia and each and it, what was fascinating was when we were doing this I got a group of artists together to do it this is a sugar negra right brown sugar right, right right brown sugar and when we got to um, Art of Palm Beach I had a group of artists many of them from various parts of Latin America and um, and the Caribbean and one, and one of the things I found interesting is each person who came up to me, whether they were from Venezuela, Mexico, uh, Central America, each had a story about their region and, and what African culture had influenced there, you know. They talked about their different ceremonies, different dances, you know. I mean, it was very rich, you know, the um, thing. Um, and so when you look at... at that area where you grew up, West Palm Beach area, mm -hmm. and and what have you, and and knowing your connection to the kind of African roots in Latin America, it's like, mm -hmm. what's next? What would you love to see next? If somebody just gave you a broad, just like carte blanche to to do what's next. What's what's interesting to you now? Oh goodness, I like doing large scale. I wouldn't mind doing a huge building. <laughs> um, uh, we've had, you know, uh, we did um a tank. Come to think of it, uh. In Riviera Beach, uh, come to think of it, one of the places my mother rented before she purchased her home mm -hmm. was they had a lot of um, Riviera Beach, like I told you, was a area where there was a lot of fishing and a lot of marine industry. Right. And for many years, it was an area where people came to do professional um, fishing, you know, a lot of or, or what you call recreational fishing, I guess, would be the thing. Gotcha. And they had the sailfish, huge sailfish. In, um, uh, um, unfortunately, they fished a lot of them away, but... Uh, yeah. But they had um, a lot of these encampments, so they had these little cottages people would rent, and they would go do sail fishing and stuff. And um, the marina where we worked at was the place where these cottages were originally at. A lot of them were 
torn down to expand the marina, okay, over the years. They basically expanded out, taking out these um, fishing hotels and cottages and stuff like that. Um, so we got the opportunity with the city of Riviera Beach to do something that was really neat, which was a tank. They had a tank in their uh in the middle of this marina that was a basically ice orb. The tank was mauve pink. And, and it was like what was stored in there before? Like one of those uh, uh, it's, gas or it something? was water. Basically, oh, like, the city oh, like of Riviera Beach is a city um, that gets its um, has a lot of wells, and mm. the wells are pumped up into these massive tanks. And so you had these tanks, and and thought, mm-hmm. what are you going to do with this? Right. And so they called us in. They said, one, we want to do art in our marina, and we would like you guys to do it. Um, and so it was um, it was interesting. Um, we got to work with the community, develop um, some of the ideas that they wanted to see. We did um, we did a couple things. We did one. I we did a huge mural on the tank, and the tank basically, uh, we decided the community wanted the intercoastal waterway reflected. Um, in Riviera Beach, the intercoastal waterway that they have there underneath the Singer Island Bridge has some of the richest. Um, uh, sea life, you know. Uh, I've been diving in it, and it is some of the richest, most beautiful sea life readily available. You just put on a mask and jump in in about 20 feet of water, and you have incredible sea life. So, yeah. Right. So we did that. So we basically put on this tank a lot of things that had to do with the aquatic life there, mm-hmm. of that richness. It's probably one of the number one diving destinations in the country, oddly enough, is in Riviera Beach. Um, so we did this tank, and the response from the community was overwhelming. Um, and what kind of things? The sea life was depicted on the tank? Sea mm-hmm. life was depicted on the tank. We had mangroves on the tank. We have a, um, thanks to Mr. Tony Hernandez, we have a giant uh, uh, diver in a, um antique diving suit, you know, with the massive metal head and everything. It's beautiful. Um, and you can see it from miles away, This ta- um, the tank. And we took something that was an eyesore and turned it into a work of art and stuff. So what should we watch next? What do you have in the works next? Well, we got a couple things in the uh, works next. Um, we are, we're planning another mural, and we uh, and you can uh, uh, planning another mural to bring some um, highlights to um, some of the local culture once again, making some connection with culture. We're also doing a project where we're doing a um, some artwork, believe it or not, um, in the um, some asphalt art which is something new for us that we haven't done before and stuff um, that has become popular around the country, doing artwork on the asphalt and cement, doing murals like that and stuff. So we're going to be doing a project. I'm like, thinking of the Black Lives Matter mural on in Minneapolis. Right, uh, right. on that street. Right. So, where, where can folks find more information on you in the last minute that we have? Last where, minute? Where can, they oh, go? where can we go? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, I guess um, street art, um, streetartrevolution.org. Mm-hmm. They can take a look at what we're doing. And, of course, we're on, also we're on Instagram. You know, just look up Street Art Revolution on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. So, you know, please. And, um, and we're also got... Um, some videos on YouTube so you can profile some of the things we've done there as well and stuff. And and what do you hope that when folks look at this just in this last few minutes, the last few seconds we have, what do you hope that folks will take away from some of this art and, and what you've tried to do with it? I would hope that people would demand in their communities art that is not for pigeons, not art that's dead and hollow, but art that reflects them and is culturally relevant, that has a passion about people and connection to community. Thank you so much, Karan Bowen. Thank you so much for coming in and spending so much time with us. <laughs> Our guest today was Karan Bowman. She's the founder and director of Curation of Street Art Revolution, a public art collective based in West Palm Beach. And that's Sundown for Monday, July 17th. 
Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Helena Acevedo helped produce the show. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio and Sundal's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. We're going to wish a happy birthday to Alfred Lopez, who's turning 70 today. Coming up tomorrow on the program, when you picture a great cigar, Yvette and Yvonne Rodriguez want you to picture black women. Twin sisters own Tres Lindas Cubanas, an Afro-Cuban cigar brand in Miami. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.